What's going on, Resonate Church? How are you this morning? Amen. Man, it is good to be with you. It has been such a great weekend being with your church family. And I just want to welcome our friends over in Hayward at Resonate Hayward. And of course, our online campus, Resonate Online. It is a joy and a pleasure to be with you. And for me, there are two, in two reasons in particular why I'm glad to be with you this morning. The first reason is because I put my faith in Jesus and he's never failed me yet. Faithful through generations, why would he fail me now? Guess what? He won't. He won't. And I love preaching about Jesus. I love telling the story of Jesus. So I'm thrilled to be able to do that for you this morning. Second reason why I'm grateful to be here is because I love Resonate Church. I'm so grateful for the ministry of this, this church and what God has done through the years, through the leadership team and, and uh, trusting the Holy Spirit and, and following the direction that God has for this church. It has been a blessing to me. In particular, about eight years ago when uh, I was kind of, uh, on, I was on a little bit of a sabbatical in ministry and I'm taking a little bit of a break and I started visiting a couple of different churches and um, one of the churches I visited over at American High School was Resonate Church. And, uh, and, and after I went to that service, I emailed uh, Pastor Ryan and I just said, hey man, I, I really appreciated being with you guys. Um, I'm a pastor in the area. Um, I'd really love to get together with you and Man, in a way that very few pastors did, because uh, I went to a number of different churches in that season, Ryan said, let's go, let's get together. Uh, met me for lunch um, in, in Fremont, and, and we got to talking and praying together. And Ryan pastored me through a challenging season in my life. And um, for that reason, man, I just love your pastor. I love your staff. I love the culture of this church and what God is doing here. Would you guys... Just do me a favor and thank the team that leads this church with me this morning. Amen. Not, not just here at Fremont, but Pastor Will down in Hayward and the team that makes the Hayward campus happen, the online group. I, I'm just so grateful. Uh, everywhere I turn, I just sense that the Holy Spirit is working amongst people here, and it's such a joy to be a part of that. Um, I have the joy this morning of continuing on in a series that you've been in for the last couple of weeks. It began on Easter Sunday, and praise God for an amazing Easter Sunday when you had the chance to think about the hope of the resurrection, and so many people gave their lives to Jesus that morning. What a blessing to hear that. And then last week to hear Pastor Jim preach on the grace of the resurrection. Uh, this morning, I'm continuing in that series, preaching on the topic of the truth, the truth of the resurrection. And our text this morning is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 19. And I'm going to have you stand as I read the scriptures this morning. Part of the reason I have you stand is because that's the culture of your church, but the other reason is because when you are standing and I'm talking, that's God's word, and then when you sit, that's just me trying to make sense of God's word, but know that this part is the infallible true part, and my part is the best attempt to do uh, the explanation and encouragement out of the text, all right? So this is what God's word says to you and to me this morning through the Apostle Paul, where he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. 
For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. I mentioned the author of this text is the Apostle Paul. If you're unfamiliar with the story of Scripture, you'll find this man by two names in Scripture. He's first introduced as a man named Saul, who later his name is changed to Paul. But when he is Saul, he's a religious Jewish person. Uh, somebody who grew up in the school of the Pharisees, someone who understood the teaching of the Old Testament, someone who was well-versed in the law and saw what was happening to followers of Jesus and Jesus himself as being a major threat to the Jewish understanding of how things are supposed to go. So much so that Saul, before he was a Christian, was a persecutor of Christians. That is, he went around killing and imprisoning Christians because he did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Oh, as the story goes, one day um, he encounters the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus and his life is forever changed. The path that he was on, the direction that he was going, uh, the, the, the things that he was doing are completely shifted, 180, and he begins to live as a missionary of Jesus. In fact, he goes through kind of an intense discipleship pro process. He uh, understands how the, all of the Old Testament actually finds its truth in Jesus, and then he is commissioned by the church to be uh, a missionary out uh, to the people who do not yet know, primarily the Gentiles, the people who do not know the story of Jesus. And so Paul is commissioned along with some of his friends to go share the gospel and they go into uh, what is present day Asia Minor, present day Syria, and they're, and they're giving testimony, they're witnessing, they're preaching the fact of the resurrection everywhere that they go, establishing churches, starting in the synagogues, working with the Jewish people, explaining how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the promises of the Old Testament. On his second missionary journey, Paul takes a couple of different missions trips. On his second missionary journey, he has an opportunity to leave the area around Israel, Syria, that area, Asia Minor, Turkey, modern-day Turkey, and actually go across the sea into what is modern-day Greece. And, and there in Greece, he has an opportunity to go to the city of Athens. Now, know that Athens is the philosophical and religious capital of the Roman Empire, so much worship of false gods is happening in and around Athens. And Paul does something very interesting when he gets to the city. He begins to walk around the city and takes an assessment of what is this city actually like? What do they believe? How do they think? Now, I don't know about you, but that's challenging to me because it makes me wonder how many times have I ever walked around my community to ask the question, what's going on in the hearts and minds of the people who live here? Uh, I, I led my church on a, on a, a campaign uh, two summers ago called CCV, Castro Valley, where we live. And the goal was that we were going to walk every street in Castro Valley and pray for our neighbors and try to understand what is the culture of this city where we live? What is God doing here? How, what, is he, what is he saying to us? How do we connect with people? How do we reach people? How do we pray for people? And Paul's doing this. He's walking around. He's assessing the city. He's getting a sense of where he is. He's never been to Athens before, as far as we know. 
And one of the things that he does is he walks around as he sees all these different idols, all these different idols to all kinds of different gods. And if you're familiar with Greek mythology or the, the Roman pantheon of gods, you know that there's a God for everything, right? And so he sees all of these different idols and all these different things that people are worshiping. And he's listening to the teachers of the day, the Epicureans and the Stoics, and they, they've got their philosophies that they're sharing. And, and he's listening to all this. And, and he comes across this one statue, this idol, and it says on the inscription, to an unknown God. You see, they had so many gods, so many different things that they were worshiping. There was a god that they didn't even know the name of, but they thought, we better not miss out on anything. Let's just have an idol and call it to an unknown god. Well, Paul says, when he gets together with this group of people and all the teachers of the city, they get together in this area called the Areopagus uh, near Mars Hill, and they have a conversation. And Paul says in Acts chapter 17, listen, the thing that you call an unknown god is actually a god who can be known. You, you are looking for answers. I applaud you for looking for answers to the questions that you have. But listen, there is an answer to the questions that you have. There is a God who can be known. And this God who you do not yet know is actually the God of all gods. He's actually the God of the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's the God who marks out the boundaries and marks out time. He's a God who holds all things together in his hand. He's not a God who is formed by human hands. Rather, he's a God who formed your human hands. This God is far greater, far better than any other God that you could be worshiping. And he concludes his message in Acts chapter 17 with these words, beginning in verse 30. He says, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands that all people everywhere are to repent Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Of course, Paul is referring to the person of Jesus. He doesn't name him here, but he's referring to the person of Jesus. That God is going to judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And he says, of this he has given assurance, or the way that he shows credibility to the message that he has a man who is going to judge the world with in righteousness, the way that he's doing this is given assurance. How? By raising him from the dead. Goes on to say, now when they heard of this resurrection of the dead, some responded by mocking, and others said, we need to hear more about this. There may be those kind of people in this room today. Some who will say, no, I just can't believe the story of the resurrection. It's too far-fetched. I can't get my head around it. I can't hold on to it. It's just too much for me. And others would say, well, I'm intrigued by this. Tell me a little bit more. Others of you have placed your faith completely in the fact of the resurrection. But Paul has this audience. Some say they're going to mock him. Others say we need to hear more about this. And so Paul leaves. It says he goes out from their midst. But some people joined him and believed among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. And then you turn to chapter 18 and it says, after this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. The reason why I start with that section of scripture is because as Paul is making his way to Corinth, central to his teaching, central to his preaching is the resurrection of Jesus. He's going to walk into whatever setting that he's in and he's going to find what is the connection point that I, that I can make with this culture, with this city, but I'm gonna get to Jesus. 
And I'm gonna get to Jesus resurrected from the dead. And Paul goes to Corinth and he ministers there. When he leaves Corinth, he goes further uh, west, or excuse me, east, back to Ephesus. There's a map that I have that shows you the distance between Athens and Corinth. And you can see it there on the screen, this, this idea of Athens being uh, this central kind of religious city and to the 50 miles to the west, the city of Corinth. Corinth is a tr- traditional uh, trade city. It's a seaport city. Further off to the east is Ephesus. When Paul goes to Ephesus, he writes his letter, 1 Corinthians, that we have in our Bible. And from Ephesus, he begins to tell the church at Corinth, listen, You need to understand what it looks like to be a church. You need to understand what discipline can look like. You need to understand what discipleship looks like. You need to understand what what the Lord's Supper should look like. All these different things that he helps, what does sexual integrity look like? He talks about all this in 1 Corinthians, but he gets to the end of the book and he does an entire chapter on the resurrection of Jesus. I need you to understand the power of the resurrection. I want you to see the beauty of the resurrection. This is what Paul's message is. And in fact, I would, be, uh, I would say today that the entire message of Christianity hinges on the fact of the resurrection. Like it is that important. There's a lot of great teaching. There's a lot of love your neighbor. There's a lot of serve other people. But none of it makes much sense if the resurrection is not true. This morning, we need to understand how is it that the resurrection is true and what does that mean for us today? So my big idea for this message today is if the resurrection of Jesus is not true, then we have a major credibility problem, a major credibility problem. You've heard of credibility problems before, right? You watch the news, you see see politicians do stupid things. And their credibility is shaken. You see pastors, unfortunately, in churches all over America that make stupid decisions, that do stupid things, and their credibility is shaken. What happens when our credibility is tested? We hire a PR firm and we go craft a statement to try to put out in front of people to say, it's not as bad as you think it is, right? Listen, Jesus and Paul need a serious credibility issue. They need a PR firm that would come in and fix this if the resurrection is not true. Because the entire message hinges on this truth. The entire reason for us gathering this morning hinges on whether or not this is true. If you got up on a Sunday morning and drove to Fremont to sit in a room with a bunch of people, some of whom you know and some of you didn't, and the resurrection is not true, that's sad. It's actually sad. It means you're being duped by something. And so whether or not this issue is true is our entire reason for gathering this morning. Credibility is so important. And when credibility is lost, the message falls apart. Let me give you an example. In 1955, there was a young and very charismatic leader in Indianapolis, Indiana. And uh, he began to, a movement of people, began to rally people around a movement um, that was uh, heavy on Christian thought, but it also interspersed ideas of communism and socialist ideologies. Uh, his popularity grew in Indianapolis, and his message, his primary message was a message of racial equality. You see, this man's dad was a KKK member. And he hated what his dad stood for. 
And so he began to, at the very beginning of the civil rights movement, began to speak about this idea of racial unity, racial equality. And he actually started a church. And the name of his church was the Wings of Deliverance. Not a great name for a church in my opinion, but that was the name that he chose. Later, they renamed the church as the People's Temple. The People's Temple thrived in Indiana in the 1950s and early 60s. In fact, uh, they, they uh, had an opportunity to, to start soup kitchens and to do rent assistance to the poor. They helped people get jobs. They gave away food. They gave away clothes. They, they, were, they were on the forefront of, of connecting people in the community. In fact, the leader named Jim and his wife Marceline, they were the first couple in Indiana to do an interracial adoption. They, they, were, they were trendsetters. They were on the front line of connecting with people who were downtrodden. But being in the 1950s and 60s, there was also this other thing happening geopolitically called the Red Scare, this rise of communism that people were scared of. And there was a threat of nuclear activity. And so Jim and the People's Temple actually moved to their location in 1963 from Indiana to Northern California. They ended up up by Ukiah in this big kind of quiet zone where there was no threat in their mind of nuclear activity. And there they thought they were going to rebuild Eden. In fact, they said, this is going to be Eden on earth. And Jim's message became increasingly political in light of the socioeconomic situation that he was living in, the geopolitical situation that he was living in. And interestingly, his message got so political that a lot of the politicians in this real liberal town that we happen to know called San Francisco got a hold of Jim's ideas and they thought, this guy's really compelling and people are following him. We should probably ingratiate ourselves to him. And Jim and his movement helped to elect mayors in San Francisco. In fact, he became part of the the housing authority there in San Francisco. One uh, politician who you may be aware of, a man by the name of Willie Brown, favorably referred to Jim as a mix between Martin Luther King, Angela Davis, Albert Einstein, and Chairman Mao. And he meant that as a compliment. In 1974, Jim and his followers had developed a huge following in San Francisco and throughout Northern California. And they decided that they needed to actually move out of the country to form this Eden-like community that they were envisioning. And so they rented land down in a South American country called Guyana in 1974, moved over 1,000 people down to form the People's Temple Agricultural Project, which later became known as Jonestown. Now, maybe you're familiar with that term, Jonestown, because their charismatic leader was Jim Jones, And Jim Jones' message, which started around Christian kind of themes, had turned into a, I am the Messiah, follow me wherever I'm going. And he promised salvation, and he promised a rebuilding of Eden that he would help oversee. Well, if you know the story of Jim Jones and the Jonestown situation, then you know that this story ends in absolute tragedy. In fact, the way that it ends is because of the pressure that they were receiving from the outside world. Jim Jones, being the Messiah complex leader of this movement, told or coerced all of the people who were living in Jonestown to drink this cyanide-laced Kool-Aid, and there they committed suicide or mass murder, depending on how you look at it. And over 900 people died in one day in this community. That's where the saying, by the way, don't drink the Kool-Aid, comes from. 
It's this idea of, of being duped, of losing your credibility. And when we look at a situation like Jonestown and we think about what happened there, we think, my goodness, the people there, what a pitiful situation. And it's in that same vein that I think Paul is writing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to say, look, if the resurrection is not true, this is a very pitiful situation. This is a problematic situation. If Jesus is still in the tomb, then his message is no different than any other person in history who led a movement that ended in death. And by the way, history is replete with people who have led movements that ended in death. All through history. You can go back and you can see numbers of people who rose up, had godlike complexes, wanted people to rally around them. People saw them as a Messiah-type figure. They followed them, and then the person died, and the movement died. The person died, and the movement died. Over and over and again, rinse and repeat all through history. And so Paul is saying, look, if Jesus is just in that line, then we've got a serious problem. We've got an issue to deal with. In fact, he says it this way in our text. He says, if there is no resurrection, then there's seven problems that we need to deal with. If there is no resurrection, there are some things that we've just got to own. And so that's what I want to do this morning. I also want to walk through the text with you to see the seven things that Paul lists because he says them very clearly. He says, look, if there is no resurrection, then Jesus is still in the tomb. If the resurrection doesn't happen, Jesus is still in the tomb. Now, I can tell you, I've been to Jerusalem, and I've been, I was there in November, and I've been to a couple different places where they think the tomb of Jesus might have been. Granted, we don't know exactly where it is, but no matter where they take you to say this is Jesus' tomb, guess who's not in there? I think you should know the answer to that. Guess who's not in there? Jesus. Jesus is not in that tomb. In other words, there is no tomb which holds the body of Jesus. Amen? In fact, there's one place where you can go, they're called the garden tomb, and you go into this cutout in a rock and you look around in there. When you turn around and you're walking out, there's a sign on the door. It says, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen indeed. But if Jesus, if there is no resurrection, then Jesus is still in the tomb. That's what Paul says in verse 13 and verse 16. In verse 14, he says, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then our message is empty. The preaching that we have done, the, the movement that we are starting, the things that we declare, they're empty. They don't make any sense if there is no resurrection from the dead. Now, you have some great preachers here at Resonate Church. But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then their message is empty. They're just good orators. They got nothing real to say if the resurrection is not true. Additionally, he says in verse 14 and 17, your faith is empty and lacking power. Some of you have placed your faith in something, and if the resurrection is not true, then guess what? Your faith is empty. It has no power. It lacks power. It, has, it can do nothing for you. You can believe something all the day long, but if it's not true, it's not going to get you anywhere. Not only is your faith empty and lacking power, but he says in verse 15, we are lying about who God is. Not only is our message lacking power, our message is actually a lie. The things that we are saying to you is actually a lie. And again, all through history, you can hear about and read about movements that began where people were told things and it comes out that it was a lie. If the resurrection is not true, the message of Christianity is a lie. We're not telling the truth about God if the, if the message of the resurrection is untrue. Not only are we lying about God, but it says in verse 17 that you are stuck in your sin. 
One of the primary reasons why you are here this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, is because you believe that you are no longer stuck in your sin. Amen? That you have been freed from your sin. That there was a past that you had, and that past can be marked by any number of different sins, any number of different things that are an offense to God, any number of different things that bring shame on you when you think about them, but you believe that through Jesus you have been freed from those things. But if the resurrection is not true, you are not free from your sin. You're actually still in the power of your sin. You're still caught. You're still bound. You don't have any hope. Not only are you stuck in your sin, but the dead who are in Christ, it says in verse 18, are actually just dead. (laughs) Now, all of us have probably lost somebody who we love, and, and, and if the resurrection is not true, then when they died, there's no future for them. There's no hope for them. He says they're just dead. He also says, finally, if the resurrection is not true, verse 19, then we collectively are a miserable or a pitiful people. We have no credibility. We're to be mocked, we're to be shamed. If there is no resurrection, listen, the enemy has won and the movement has failed. If there's no resurrection, there's no hope. I was reminded of a a painting that I saw um, and, and a painting has a story that goes with it. This painting was painted in the 1800s. It's a picture of two guys playing chess. I got a picture of it here on the screen. It's called Checkmate. That's the title of the painting. And the painting depicts two different people playing chess, obviously. The person on the left is representing the devil. The person on the right is representing a man who has made a deal with the devil. And this is um, depicting a, a, a work of um, a literature from the 1500s by a German author named Goethe who wrote about this man who makes a deal with the devil. And in the 1800s, somebody took that story and wrote and, and kind of drew this painting and it was hanging in a, in a uh, French art gallery meant to depict that when the man gives up his life to the devil, when he sells himself to the devil, the devil has the opportunity to call checkmate on his life. That ultimately the devil is going to win. It doesn't matter what kind of success the man has in the world. If he's given his life to the devil, then the devil is going to win. And so the, the, the painting is called Checkmate because it depicts the move where the devil is going to win. Well, in the 1950s, there was a group of guys who were coming through this French um, um, art museum, and uh, they were a team of people, actually, who were chess experts. They were on their way to a tournament to play uh, in Europe. And they were walking through the art gallery, and they saw this picture on the wall. And of course, being chess players, chess masters, they stopped and looked at it, and they were intrigued by it and paid attention to it. And so they were looking at it with a great deal of intrigue. And after a little while, the group moved on to other parts of the museum, but one person stayed behind because he just could not get his eyes off of this painting. He wanted to really take a look at it. And so this man stays behind, and he looks at this painting with great detail, and he he comes in really close, and he's looking at the detail of the painting, and then he steps way back, and he's looking at the larger picture of the painting, and he's trying to get a sense of what's going on. And all of a sudden, like a light clicks on in his mind, and he goes and he gets the other chess players, and he brings them back. And he says, look, they should either change the name of this painting or they should change the painting itself. The guy's like, what are you talking about? Why would they do that? And he says, because the the, the painting is called Checkmate as if the devil's going to win. But if you look really closely, that man's king has one more move. The king has one more move. And if he makes that move, he's actually going to win the chess game. Here's why I tell that story. At the cross, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, 
And, and he dies on the cross at the hands of men. I believe that the enemy of God, Satan himself, is looking at that situation and thinking, checkmate. I got him. I got him right where I had Pharaoh. I got him right where I have Cyrus. I got him right where I have Nebuchadnezzar. I got him right where I have Alexander the Great. All these other people who were raised up in history that people followed after that thought, this is going to lead us to the promised land. This, these Messiah type people, he's just like them. Checkmate. I got him. But the story of the resurrection is this. The king has one more move. Amen? The king has one more move. And Easter Sunday morning is about the king saying to the devil who has called checkmate, no, I don't think so. I've got one more move. I'm going to bring this savior back to life and he is going to conquer sin and death. Devil, your power has nothing on me or on these people because Jesus is actually going to move and win. Amen? This is what the story of the resurrection is all about. And because we believe that it's true, listen to this. It's not just something that we hold on to. But in this series, you've talked about the hope of the resurrection. You've talked about the grace of the resurrection. Next week, you're going to hear about the power of the resurrection. I'm here to tell you today, there is no hope. There is no grace. There is no power if it's not true. But because it's true, because the resurrection is true, there is grace in the resurrection. There's hope in the resurrection and there is power in the resurrection. And listen to me this morning. I don't care how you got here. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what your story is. The king can have one more move in your life today as well. You might you might sit here today feeling as though the enemy of your life is calling checkmate on you. Checkmate on your marriage, checkmate on your addiction, checkmate on your sin problems, checkmate on your, your truthfulness, checkmate on your cheating, checkmate on your relationships, whatever it is. And I'm here to say that the king always has one more move. He can free you from those things. And because the king has one more move, because the resurrection is true, listen to this. All those seven things that Paul said are a problem actually become movements in our favor because the resurrection is true. So take that list of seven and flip it upside down. Because the resurrection is true, Jesus is in fact not in the tomb. Amen? Because the resurrection is true, this message, the message of this church is a message of life. It's a message of hope. It's a message of power because the resurrection is true. Not because we have any great ability, but because we are declaring to you something that is life-giving. In fact, it gives you the opportunity to have faith and not just an empty faith, but a faith that can change your life. How many people in this room could stand and give testimony to the fact that putting my faith in Jesus changed my life? Amen? It changed my direction. It changed my future. It changed my relationships. It changed my family. It changed my affections. It changed my future. It's changed everything. My faith has power because the resurrection is true. Not just because I'm a, I, I think good thoughts, not just because I work myself up to do good things. No, I have power because the resurrection is true. 
And not only that, but we, we are not lying about who God is. Rather, we are declaring truth to you about who God is, about this God who loves you, about this God who sacrificed for you, about this God who wants a relationship with you, this God who is empowering you to live boldly in this world. Not only that, but here's really good news. You are, in fact, free from your sin. Amen? It has no power over you. The dead in Christ are actually more alive than they've ever been. They're not dead. They're not just ceasing to exist, but they, they died in Christ and there's a future that is waiting for them. We're not a people who are miserable and pitiful. Rather, we are a people who are full of joy, who have a hope, who have a future. Here's how Paul concludes the message in 1 Corinthians 15. Actually, verse 20, I'm gonna steal from next week's passage just a little bit. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. You, you, can, you can say, well, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, we've got a whole list of problems. But his conclusion is, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Can you say that with me this morning? But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. That was good, but it wasn't great. I got to be honest with you. I want you to say it like you mean it this morning. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And if he has been raised from the dead, amen. Amen. If in fact, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and if that is true, then the king has one more move for you. He's calling you to himself. This way of life that you've been living that is offering no hope and no future, he wants to give you something that is far better than what you could ever imagine. He wants to be faithful to you. He wants to draw you in. He wants to make you his child. He wants to free you from all of the things that hold you down, the things that bring you shame. He wants you to walk in newness of life. He wants you to be clothed in the righteousness of his son. He wants you to no longer be bound up by sin, but rather when he looks at you, he will see the righteousness of Jesus Christ covering you. Why? Because Jesus conquered sin and death, because the resurrection is true. And because Jesus has done that, because he invites us into a relationship with his father, we have a future and a hope that is far better than anything that this world can offer. We are not to be pitied. We are a people full of joy, anticipating what God will do in the future. The return of his son, Jesus, calling his people home, establishing a kingdom that will never be shaken, faithful to the end, no more tears, no more pain, no more sickness, joy in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you that the gospel is true. Thank you that we can hold on to this truth, that it will not fail us. Father, I pray for anybody in this room that has not yet placed their faith in Jesus, that they would do that, that they would trust you because the resurrection is true. Not because I've said anything compelling, not because I have any sort of uh, way to, to pressure them in anything, but rather because they see that the resurrection is true. And because it's true, it's worth holding on to. It's worth trusting. It's worth following with everything that we have. God, would you work in each one of us today, giving us confidence that no matter what situation we find ourselves in life, the King of Kings has one more move for us to draw us to himself and secure for us a glorious future. In Jesus' name, amen.